Hello and welcome everybody to According to Andrew number 84, a review of Secular Cycles by Peter Turchin and Sergei Nefedaz. I probably screwed that up. I, I apologize. Uh, anyway, uh, before we get into it, I have a couple of announcements. So one is that uh, I got to do an interview with, or uh, discussion with um, Steve Keen, uh, Dr. Steve Keen, uh, who's the author of uh, debunking economics, and I got to ask him some, um, specific questions about some of the, uh, details and ideas and stuff like that, that he had. Uh, it was a really cool opportunity, um, and, uh, Daniel Sanderson is the one that set that up. I really mu very much appreciated it. Uh, he's the one that hosted the podcast, so it's over there on his channel. I will link to it in the description or in that right-hand corner thing, maybe both, um, so you guys can go check that out. The first half, we just talk about economics. The last half, we get into some, uh, Climate change stuff, uh, I was there for the economics, so I didn't have much to contribute to the climate change thing, um, but it was a lot of fun, and uh, go check it out. Then, other than that, uh, oh, uh, podcast is going back to three days a week, uh, because I have more time on my hands. We'll leave it there. <laughs> um, so, there's that. So, uh, expect Monday, Wednesday, Friday is where I'm going to try to do uh, the podcast again. And, uh, so this week it's Wednesday already. So this week you're going to get Wednesday, Friday, and then then on, I should, I'll, I'll work on doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So those are the announcements now into the video. So secular cycles, just finished this great book. Do recommend. Uh, it was, uh, interesting. There's when you're reading historical stuff and it's, it's always kind of ends up being like a laundry list of, of things, uh, that when you're going through the book. So, like there's times where your, your eyes can glaze over. And, uh, I was kind of new, not new to this concept. Yeah, I guess new. Uh, you know, this is the first book by, uh, Peter, uh, Turchin that I had read. So, uh, there's that getting used to his writing style, all that. Um, and then kind of his way of analysis, analyzing things and looking at stuff. I found the, so there's, uh, Four, or there's eight different cycles that they look at. Uh, they basically have a, a cycle of overpopulation causes issues. We'll, I'll touch on, on what the general theory is in a second. But they have uh, eight case studies that they look at um, from four different groups. So they, they cover England in two different eras, uh, France in two different eras, Rome in two different eras, and uh, Russia in two different eras. And um, the Russian... One, the last Russian one ends in 1917 with the, the Soviet Revolution that takes over. I was most familiar with the that kind of era of history and what was going on, um, mainly because of this great podcast called Revolutions, which I recommend you guys check out. And they're currently going through the Bolshevik Re Revolution and all the various uh, stuff that kind of led up to it. So I had a little bit more uh, historical context for that section of the book, and that really helped me kind of connect the dots a little bit better, and you'll get some of my insights in that uh, in a little bit. <clears throat> so overall, the, um, the, the first chapter is just kind of setting up um, what the kind of model is and, and gives it, tells you about the model. Then the next uh, eight chapters are your uh, case studies, and then the last is just a, a concluding thing. Uh, and there's some interesting statements that he had uh, throughout here, but um, basically, the, the primary things that they hit on is, uh, you, so you have, like, three stages. You have, uh, let me see if I can find the, there's a 
graph in here that uh, that articulates it pretty well. Um, so <clears throat> you'll have an expansion phase where uh, things are going good. Uh, you're conquering more territory. More people are being born. And oh, by the way, these this is used to model uh, pre-industrial agrarian societies. So these he I think he has other books that try to to map it to uh, non-agrarian societies, or he adjusts the model for that. But um, this book doesn't look at that. So keep that in mind. And it's kind of hard to put yourself in the context of an agrarian society because we live in an industrial society now, and it it has changed a lot. Uh, you don't run into and maybe maybe it's just a matter of time, but um, you don't run into these. Uh, expansion growth limits as hard uh with industrial society it seems than when you do or than you do with uh agrarian societies and i think eventually we would like a uh, you know agrarian societies did hit that limit we become so productive that we become like fat and lazy and stuff like that and eventually i think we if we produce enough people we would hit that limit i don't know what that limit is or what it would be <clears throat> um but it seems to keep going up and up um, so yeah, so there's an expansion phase where there's growth, then there's a stagflation phase. The stagflation phase is basically where you're not, uh, it's kind of America right now, right? Where you, in the 70s, if you guys have seen that graph, where, uh, what is it? Do, do, do. So you have that graph where it goes and you have a splitting where the overall productive output keeps going up and up and up. So basically there's more and more wealth being produced, but the overall wages have stagnated since the 70s that's your stagflation phase uh the elites get super super wealthy and they they love it and it but uh the actual normal everyday people are getting absolutely crushed and this leads to political instability but a political instability that the elites have no incentive to fix because they are making so much money so this is one of the things that ends up inevitably leading to our crisis phase and so we these are kind of things that while this isn't a perfect map to our current society, you can kind of see where this, some of this stuff is happening. You had our wealth, uh, our elites get super wealthy off the rise of China at the exploitation of all of the American people. <clears throat> uh, they, this created a problem, and now to fix the problem, it's going to cost them personally, so they don't want to do it because they're, uh, they focus on their own self-interest over any other uh, external interests, and then it's going to cause a collapse. So then... There's a crisis, usually a pretty short period of time, where there's a complete collapse. These cycles last about 400-ish years. Uh, and then there's a, a depression where there's it's kind of sits in a decline for a while until things can kind of start picking up again. Uh, and that's, you know, a couple of generations. Uh, probably about know, is it 60 years? I don't know. It depended on the cycle, I guess. Um, so that's kind of the what the cycles are. And then there's... Uh, the various overviews. I'm not going to really get into the details of that. Um, you can read the book if you want to, to find out all the details there. Uh, but that kind of covers that. So now I wanted to kind of dive into some of the observations that I had um, about this whole thing. And mainly it goes along with like elites. So he kind of had two different categories for overproduction. So you had um, normal population overproduction, and then you had elite overproduction. Uh, elite overproduction would usually lead to political instability because you basically have, uh, more people of this certain, uh, class that are trying to compete for fewer and fewer, uh, political power positions, uh, and your, your commoner, uh, class overpopulation is basically the land produces so much food and 
uh, after successive generations that the carrying capacity of that land has hit a limit, and therefore those people just it, it hits a limit where they can't uh, get any more out of the land and start starving to death, and it's a bad time. So, uh, one thing that I did find interesting when going through uh, the Roman section is uh, how incredibly unstable late era Rome was, where it's like, you know, they didn't have a government for like more than a year, two years. Like, it was like, you had this emperor, then he died, then you had this emperor, he died, and then you had like all these pretenders, and then eventually one ended up on the throne, and then he died like six months later. Um, and so it reminded me, this is basically current Italian politics. So I guess the Italians are far more Roman than we had initially assumed. Because uh, I had always been like, oh man, like the Italians used to be like Romans and they used to have all this glory and like it, it just doesn't seem like they're that way anymore. But then you look at Roman history and you're like, oh, maybe maybe this is just uh, how it was back then too. And, and uh, this is just the norm. So uh, I found that kind of interesting and a little comical. Uh, so let's see here. Oh, that was that. So, uh, one thing that was kind of interesting is, uh, a unified elite seems to be the major if... Oh. A unified elite seems to be the major factor if a rebellion is to be successful or not. If the elites are unified, then there's almost certainly will be crushed. Uh, they can, you know, agree on ways to respond. Uh, they all feel their power threatened, so they're, they're not going to take any, uh, crap. If they are divided, the situation is still precarious, but it is much uh, more. Uh, it is much more likely that the rebellion succeeds. Sorry, uh, I sometimes write things terribly. Uh, being that the elite seems to be unified in America, uh, is balkanization or revolution even feasible? So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, kind of contemplating some of these stuff. Uh, we will get into that. I think a little bit farther down as well. Um, so yeah so then another aspect that kind of ties into this and something that we saw with the um february revolution the bolshevik revolution what turned into the bolshevik revolution in russia is a similar thing that we can kind of see uh, right now so one of the reasons that we see revolution in the united states right now is because of elite overproduction and them having nowhere to go to achieve their ambitions. So in Russia, what they happened, they had a bunch of college people starting coming out of college and there was no administrative roles or places in the government for them to go and take advantage of their qualifications. Uh, and so we're seeing that a lot in the United States right now. Yes, so a lot of the degrees are garbage, but even so, uh, even if, like, let's say all of those were focused on engineering and science and all this stuff, and it was refocused into careers that we actually needed right now. There would still be way too many people um, in those careers. So then you would still need an outlet for these people, and that's where you kind of generate these issues. Uh, people feel uh, ill-contented. They're underemployed. They feel entitled to various aspects. Um, but anyway, uh, to continue... Uh, so they get involved in revolutionary activity. This is outlined well in the Russian chapter 9 on Secular Cycles on page 281, as it describes with the Russian growth of college grads uh, could not be met with sufficient growth of government jobs. Um, covered the Revolutions podcast already. Uh, so a major driver for elite fragmentation is usually centered around the power struggle, 
where the petty elite feel marginalized when the top elite are usually drastically in, uh, are usually drastically increasing their revenues many times at the petty elite's expenses. So this is the stagflation phase, right? During the stagflation phase, um, to try to keep up appearances and stuff like that, a lot of times petty elites will go into debt and other things to um, start trying to afford the lifestyle of these higher elites to try to be within these circles. It's just, I don't know, it's the nature of nobility and how they have to operate seemingly um but then eventually that debt catches up with them and then the whole thing kind of collapses and there's no more wealth to be extracted out of the peasantry so it doesn't really work and we're we have a modern version of that basically right now but uh it looks a little different because we're an industrialized society uh this creates a situation where part of the elite class is willing to overthrow the current order to secure greater power uh, this also commonly occurs when foreign elite are permitted to wield power within a po uh, polity as they have no loyalty to the system or the heritage of the power structure. They simply want more power and so are willing to go uh, much farther than the patrician class would uh, in their attempts to get it. So you see this with what happened in Rome when Caesar took over and you see that uh, when they let the Italians in and part of the Italian elites and some of these other aspects of the non-Roman elite you saw more and more disrespect and ignoring of the traditions of Rome and how things are run. Yes, there isn't a rule for it, but this is how we do things, right? That eventually these traditions and these these uh, ways of doing things get eroded over time, and that's partially because if, if you're in a game for power, and uh, especially if you're a foreigner, those structures and those ways of thinking and stuff like that, that helps maintain the power of the current patricians, the original people that founded the place. And it does absolutely nothing to help your power and a lot of times stifles or uh, depresses the amount of power that you can attain as a uh, foreigner. So they have every incentive to try to undermine and disrupt and get rid of these norms and power structures so that they can attain their maximum amount of uh, power that they, they seek as uh is their desire, I guess. Um, so, uh, we can see examples of this in the USA with the Democrats willing to wield total politics and destroy the institutional structures of it uh, to give them more power. Uh, total politics being the going, doing any means necessary short of violence because once you've reached violence, then basically civil war is broken out. Uh, even violence in certain reg regards is still considered total of politics, like assassinations and stuff like that, like very uh, limited and uh, tightly um, poignant violent acts don't necessarily cross the uh, total politics line into a uh, civil war line. So it's a little blurry there. But anyway, continuing on. Uh, court packing is a tangible, tangible example of this, uh, and there are many more that I'm sure you can probably think of. So <clears throat> another interesting aspect that he kind of talked about in the very last little part is uh, Churchin points out that in the 19th century, uh, war was a test of the robustness of the so, uh, social systems had to endure almost constantly. Uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s, war was basically a constant up until basically the big the big bang of World War II. Uh, during the stagflation phases, when the social structures were particularly fragile, uh, most states failed the test of war. So basically, the like we saw with in World War One, World War Two, like. Uh, Economic systems were kind of pushed to their breaking point. Total war was instituted. 
everything was, uh, the gas was put to the max. And in all honesty, uh, outside of Russia and World War One, the political structures did survive those wars. Um, and probably more importantly, uh, the overall, but like they were pushed to such limits that I think they kind of became fragile. And they also, uh, you know, the collective psychic uh, shock of that, of basically the, the West committing suicide or, or the Western civil war as it's been described by uh, certain people, uh, basically created a backlash to never want to do anything harmful. And that's why we have all of this, uh, you know, coddle, not coddling. Well, it is coddling, but what's the term? Basically, avoid war at all costs is kind of the motto nowadays. Uh, I know in the one book that I read, uh, Unrestricted Warfare, the Chinese are like, the best way to destroy the American military is just to kill its ground troops. Like, the, as kind of horrible as it is, like, well, okay, so a plus side of America is it actually tries to keep its its soldiers alive and its, its individual infantry men alive. The problem is... Uh, the entire point is to go into violent areas, do a lot of violent acts, and get violence shot back at you. So the probability that you keep them alive is pretty, pretty low. Um, or, and to have, like, zero casualties, because that's, like, the ultimate goal of uh, America and, and a lot of Western uh, war-making countries. And the Chinese just don't care about that. Like, they're like, yeah, if we kill a million people... Like, I'm sure they care to a certain extent, but they understand that warfare is has certain costs to it, and that cost is going to be human life. And so you can just basically attrition uh, people like America and stuff like that out, uh, out, not even by bombing uh, their country or whatever, but by just killing as many uh, everyday soldiers as possible to the point that the people back home don't want to fight the war anymore. And if you look at the overall total deaths uh, for American war, like America's threshold for uh, warfare and allowing war to be committed and fought and the sacrifice that Americans are willing to expend for warfare is far lower than most every other nation. Now, I think one of the reasons for that is because of America's geopolitical or its geographic region. It gets to play geopolitics for fun. It is not a life and death situation. And therefore the sacrifice of, uh, Outside of the Civil War, which was the highest one, right, with 600,000, that was kind of a life and death struggle. Outside of that, there has never been, like, a life or death struggle, generally, in American warfare. Uh, I guess Revolutionary War and potentially War of 1812 are the only other two. So, uh, this just isn't an issue. Anyway, getting back to the original point, um, so we have these fragile structures. World War II kind of capped that, and I think when we go into the Cold War, uh... It, we have a different perspective because this social structure might have been so fragile that the both the Soviet Union and America didn't want to test it with war, and that's why they did everything possible to avoid it. It could also be what I just talked about with um, the psyche and being so broken and not wanting any of your soldiers to die. Could be that also. But anyway, getting back to the actual point of some of the things I could draw from the Secular Cycle book. Um, thus, keeping the peace was... Uh, let's jump back. Uh... This might give a new perspective of the Cold War as regards to the social structure enduring another European war after World War I and World War II. Or could it endure another uh, major European war? And I would say no. Thus, keeping the peace was an imperative for both the Soviet Union and the USA and to keep to keep the political order from collapsing. While it certainly pro prolonged the collapse and allowed uh, time for possible aversion of the crisis, it seems that path was not taken 
uh, in the Soviet Union, and it appears uh, to be the case as well in America, as we are currently in a... I don't know if we've technically entered the crisis phase, but like crisis, it, almost everyone's accepted at this point that crisis is coming. So what that ends up looking like, what it is, there's a lot of questions around that, but it is, a lot of people see it as inevitable. Um, so the last little thing that I found interesting, this maybe ties into the book, maybe it doesn't, but um, I'll give my little spiel on it and uh, you guys can... Think of it as you will. Uh, so the reason of division of power in the United... The reason division of power... So I was... Okay, to give a little perspective on this. So I was thinking about... Uh, when I was at Freedom Fest, I kind of came up with the idea of how the division of power within the United States government doesn't actually work, right? And I was trying to figure out why that didn't work and what a successful model of division of power working was. And generally, when I think of a successful division of power working, uh, it is basically the medieval era. So where you had a breakdown and a, a lot of smaller political entities uh, all vying for power. So that's kind of what I modeled the idea on. And I've, I've talked about this a little bit previously. I don't remember what video it was in now, so unfortunately. So... Uh, the reason the division of power in the United States doesn't work is because despite uh, the state having different branches uh, which hold different powers, that power is still centralized in the state apparatus itself. And so still functions as a single entity uh, that is ever trying to increase its centralization of power. When you compare that to the medieval political system and how power was divided between the different institutions, uh, they were constantly vying for a bigger portion of the pie. This generally kept things in check, but did eventually break down with the absolute monarchs being able to concentrate power. So basically, this is when you have the transition from the medieval period to the, um, what's it called? The state, uh, the creation of the state is when the medieval order breaks down and these different factions that you had that were constantly vying for power um, get, uh, get broken down. So the, the primary ones, you had the towns, you had... Uh, so there's just individual towns that, basically city-states, that scattered throughout Europe that were independent. Uh, Venice is a good example of that. Uh, I think Genoa also falls under that. A lot of Italy was kind of set up this way, uh, but I believe there was plenty of German ones as well. Uh, obviously, you had the Holy Roman Empire, but that was just a ton of tiny little principalities all over the place. Um, and so that represents, the Holy Roman Empire is a good example, and its tiny little principalities that were everywhere, is a good example of your nobility and how they wielded power, and uh, and these are kind of test cases where, like, the nobility was probably strongest in the Holy Roman Empire area. The city-states model was strongest in the Italian area. Um, and then you had the church, also strongest in the Italian area, um, but that was kind of scattered throughout all of uh, Europe. And then uh, you had the monarchs, and the monarchs are best represented by probably England and France, <clears throat> and maybe Spain. So those are the four different political entities that are constantly vying for power and trying to kind of one-up each other and, and make sure that they maintain their certain slice of the pie. They don't give up political power. If they do give up political power, that they, they do it for a good reason. Um, and so eventually, because of the Black Death and all this stuff, a lot of these, the balance of power between all these different entities kind of broke down and uh, 
the monarchs got to win out in the end, but then they were eventually kind of subsumed by a new political institution called the state, which removed power directly from them and gave it more towards uh, a bureaucratic um, entity that ran the country, not for them, but basically the country became too big to run as a single person. So it kind of spread out power again to a certain extent, uh, but in a different way. And it was still all concentrated under a single umbrella. Hopefully this is all making sense. Uh, so this broke down, concentrated power. Okay. Uh, so a good example of what I just kind of described is the no nobility got subsumed while the church was removed from relevance by the Reformation. So basically there was two kind of approaches. Either they were removed from relevance by various things, the Black Death or Reformation. Both those kind of uh, were the two nails in the coffin of the uh, Catholic Church. This is a uh, grip on power in Europe. And the other was nobility. The nobility kind of got subsumed into court life. And instead of being kind of independent um, entities, they were vying for uh, to basically, instead of being independent political entities of their own and then sometimes serving the king when it suited them or whatever, uh, it became more on what privileges and stuff like that in the court can you extract out of the king. And therefore, they became much more um, subservient to the king. Actually, uh, now that I'm talking about this, it's all kind of flooding back into my head. I read a book called uh, God's Kings and or Kings and People. I, that's what it's called, uh, which is really good. And I did a review on it like sometime in 20. It was like one of my first videos. Uh, so you can go watch that. I don't know how good it is. Um, but that kind of talked about some of this stuff and how you had these political entities that um, shifted from uh, your nobility, how they got kind of kind of kind of subsumed by the, the courts, but then they ended up kind of taking their power back and how that ebbed and flowed throughout history. Anyway, continuing on. Um, so, there are... So, with this, there are pluses and minuses. So, uh, the division of power has interesting results. It increases the regularity of conflict, but decreases its severity, and internal conflict is just as likely as external conflict. Compared this to the state model, which we are currently under, uh, which has limited internal conflict uh, and fewer but more intact external conflicts. Think World War I, World War II, uh, but generally civil wars are pretty rare. Uh, as for which ultimately ends up being better for the commoner is hard to say, as they both have been rapacious tax-wise at times. Uh, the times where they are leaning is generally when they have limited uh, consolidated power themselves, and so... Uh, can't inflict high taxes or other burdens on society. Also, they're generally trying to undermine the other power centers by seeming like the more reasonable choice, which at the very moment that they, they have it set up, they probably are the more reasonable choice. Um, it's just whether or not some shock comes into the system that makes it so that uh, as one power center is getting undermined and the power switches from one group to another, whether or not they can be switched back to... What's it called? Um... That other, that other entity, or whether or not, like I said, it gets subsumed or uh, cast off into irrelevance. Um, anyway, I think that covers everything that I had here. Uh, the major driver for the elite fragmentation. Yep. So, yeah. That, uh, <clears throat> that was interesting. Also, oh, 
Also, uh, one last thing that he points out in the book that I thought was interesting is how civil wars were usually uh, generational. And that's kind of goes back to a phrase that I've, I've mainly heard Vox Day say, but I'm pretty sure it's an old phrase, of um, the country long at peace is probably a, a butchering of the... the but a, a, a man long at peace desires war, and uh, a man long at war desires peace. It's that kind of duality of man. But you see this as a generational thing, right? Uh, the the guys that the the fathers that fought the war generally avoid the war at all costs, the civil war at all costs, and their sons probably do. Their grandsons uh, then f- get to the point where it's like war seems like the better alternative to giving up more freedoms and powers and and privileges and all that stuff. So they go to war, creates another generation of shock people. Then you have the sons and the grandsons, and you just kind of have this cycle continuously happening throughout uh, throughout history. So that was another uh, aspect that he tied in to the overall um, framework of, of what he talked about. So uh, those are all my thoughts on uh, the secular cycles and some of the other lessons and ideas I could kind of pull from it and, and what I thought about it. Hopefully you guys found this interesting. Um, if you did, leave a like or and a comment. Uh, if you didn't think I described something well or have questions about, like, what do you mean by this? Because sometimes I make assumptions about things um, or assume people have a background on, on certain aspects that they don't. Uh, just leave a comment below. I'll either answer the comment or maybe I'll do a video on it. We will see because we are back to three videos a week. Let's go. Um, anyway, I'm on BitChute. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Podbean. Uh, I'll work on getting on other platforms now that I have the time to work on that. But that's pretty much it. Uh, Hopefully you guys have a good day and uh, have a good one.